This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, February 5, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today is a freeform day where I'll discuss a few topics that have been in the news lately. But first, you know, legislation shouldn't be for sale, should it? But here we are. Those that raise the most money in their campaigns usually win their elections and off to Congress they go, making laws that don't serve the people that voted for them, but only serves the people that funded their campaigns. That doesn't seem fair, but there is hope. Move to Amend is pushing for a constitutional amendment that'll put an end to corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. For more information on how much our government has been corrupted by unrestricted campaign financing and what you can do about it, you can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So as I said earlier, today is a freeform day, and we're just going to talk about a couple of topics going on in the news these days. You may have noticed if you've been listening to Democracy on the Move for a while that uh, really haven't had that many guests online recently and not really had that much to talk about. And I have to apologize in advance, but not really, because what I'm doing at this point is working on something that's much larger than Democracy on the Move. For me, it's really going to the next level out there. And what we're doing here is we're working on a radio station. Yes, not a terrestrial type radio station, you know, you know with a big broadcast tower or DJ spinning records or anything like that, but I'm talking about an online streaming radio station. And uh, what's the motivation behind this? Well, let me spend a minute or two talking about it. Here's the thing. There is a lot of content out there that's that's uh, going on the AM and FM broadcast radio stations, chiefly AM radio stations out in the rural areas. And people in the rural areas don't have much of a choice of the types of, of uh, news and talk radio that they listen to. And we're sort of challenging that. And when I say we, I've gotten together with a bunch of other people who are very interested in pushing out an alternative radio station out there. Now, we can't afford to buy these terrestrial radio stations with big towers and things like that. So we're going to go online, an online streaming radio station. And here's our motivation. Here it is. Each week, 50 million Americans tune into News Talk Radio. 50 million Americans which is dominated by five companies, five major media companies that devote 91% of their content to conservative programming. And furthermore, 92% of these conservative radio stations have no progressive content whatsoever. And finally, you know, many Hispanic radio stations are popping up all over the nation with about 200 of them to date, actually more than 200 of them to date, and almost all of them are conservatives. Now, conservatives have known for years that radio remains a powerful voice of influence, and because many people in rural areas have no other form of media for their news and information, conservative voices dominate. Other forms of news talk radio, on the other hand, have had little success in penetrating rural markets, and it shows. And here's how it affects us. According to Suzanne Mettler, senior professor of American institutions at Cornell University, Urban and rural voters voted similarly in presidential elections until the 1990s, 
when a divide between the two groups began and has grown dramatically ever since. This divide coincides with two influential trends. One, the disappearance of local newspapers, and two, the growing prominence of conservative talk radio led by people like Rush Limbaugh, who was a pioneer in that area. Since the government relaxed regulations regarding market ownership of media in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, five conservative media companies have emerged to dominate the available AM and FM radio spectrum, making it nearly impossible and highly expensive to penetrate this market with different alternative content. Now, this different alternative content is not necessarily progressive, but something that isn't focused on rage, something I call angertainment, you know, the cross between anger and entertainment. With this new radio station idea that we have, we are going to challenge this scenario by changing the rules of the game. Now, as broadband internet rolls out across rural areas in the nation as part of our nationwide infrastructure program, there is now a timely and unique opportunity to deploy an alternative radio station nationwide without the cost of licensing bandwidth and purchasing dozens if not hundreds of terrestrial radio stations. And we believe that streaming radio will allow us to perform an end run around the dominant players and deploy to anyone with a cell phone and or a smart speaker. Can you imagine that? Sitting there and talking to your smart speaker and say, hey, I want to hear a radio station, and it just plays it for you from TuneIn or something like that. Now, this is what I would call an unfair advantage because the cost of operating a single radio station that can broadcast nationwide makes streaming radio much more nimble and dynamic than the companies that have sunk millions of dollars into legacy terrestrial radio stations and networks. So the bottom line is this. I was privileged enough to get involved with a bunch of other people, primarily from rural areas, and, uh, and put together this uh, radio station. We haven't gone on the air yet. We won't go on the air for a few more months. We haven't even announced the name of the radio station yet. But the plan is to make this radio station feature the voices of rural America, produced to a large degree by rural America. So it's from rural America to rural America, and it will feature the voices of rural America. We think it's a good idea. And if you're interested in this, uh, let me know. I'm going to give you my personal email address. That's dan at democracyonthemove.org. That's dan at democracyonthemove.org. Shoot me an email. Let me know if you're interested in getting involved in this. It seems like a great idea. Um, it, it's an idea that really kind of exploded. Uh, we've actually had more than 100 people already in, uh, express interest in this. It's really coming down to about a core of maybe a, about a dozen people that are driving this thing forward. And I'm personally very excited about it. The problem is it takes a lot of my personal time away from democracy on the move. And I apologize for that. But I think we're uh, taking this whole thing to the next level. And I think that the results are going to be much, much more substantial. So here's an interesting thing that came up over this past week. And it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll form it in the shape of a question here. Can you be progressive without being woke? Think about it. Can you be progressive without being woke? Now, I'm talking about the more contemporary form of the word woke. And, um, and I don't know. I mean... I know that you can't be conservative and be woke in the contemporary sense, but can you be progressive without being woke? That's a good question, I think. So first of all, I have to ask, what does it mean to be woke? And that definition seems to shift over the last you know, several years, I would say. It used to be a good thing, but now it's kind of used as an insult, right? 
So I had to dive back. I, I, I mentioned this in previous podcasts. I looked at a book from John McWhorter, and um, the book is entitled uh, Woke Racism, and the subtitle is How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America. And John McWhorter is a, I believe he's a linguistic professor at Columbia University. And I read the book, and the thing is, um, <clears throat> starting right here in page four, I think is probably the most important two paragraphs of the book, at least in my opinion, very much in the beginning of the book. So either get the book or look at the preview of it on Amazon.com, and you can read this for yourself. It starts on the very bottom of page four. So I'm going to read these two paragraphs, and I'm going to skip just a little bit of them because there's uh, he references some other things going on within the context of the chapter, but I want to keep the context focused on my initial question of what is racism, I'm sorry, of what is wokeism. And uh, here it goes. Here's these two paragraphs. One can divide anti-racism into three waves. First wave anti-racism battled slavery and legalized segregation. Second wave anti-racism in the 1970s and 80s battled racist attitudes and taught America that being racist is a moral flaw. Third wave anti-racism, becoming mainstream in the 2010s, teaches that because racism is baked into the structure of society, whites' complicity in living within the society constitutes racism itself, while for black people, grappling with the racism that surrounds them is the totality of experience and must condition exquisite sensitivity toward them, including a suspension of standards of achievement and conduct. Under this paradigm, all deemed insufficiently aware of this sense of existing while white as eternal culpability require bitter condemnation and ostracization to an obsessive abstract degree that leaves most observers working to make real sense of it, makes people left of center wonder just when and why they started being classified as backward and leaves millions of innocent people scared to pieces of winding up in the sights of zealous brand of inquisition that seems to hover over almost any statement, ambition, or achievement in modern society. Now, you can tell that John McWhorter is a professor of linguistics because for me it was really hard to read uh, his his work because his sentences became fairly um, fairly abstract. But if I follow it correctly, what he's basically saying is that is that the sense of woke racism is based on a preposition that whites, all whites, by living in society, are guilty, and all blacks living in society are victims. And this actually victimizes both blacks and whites and everybody in between, too. I mean, we can we can we can put in any type of race there. And, and I think you can also put in uh, sexual orientation and things like that. So th that's uh, that's what I, I think becomes um, a, a modern definition for wokeism. And so the so that I go back to my original question here is, can you be progressive without being woke? And I think you can. But I think that uh, you can't be woke without being progressive also. And the two get confused because I consider myself a progressive person. Progressive in the sense that I believe in people's right to vote. I believe everyone should have fair representation. I believe that corporations shouldn't have undue influence over our politics. But here we are. So, you know, if I go to fight these 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 uh, elements in our society, if I say something to the effect of, you know, I don't believe that uh, that um, that people should be turned away at the polls. I believe that uh, voting is is a human right. I believe, um, um, you know, I can just go down the line about these things. None of them are really based on whether a person is black or white. 
Now, where it really becomes an issue, I think, is when I go out there to protest things like police brutality, and I can march along with my fellow citizens and march against police brutality. That's not to say that every cop is guilty. You know, there is no, there is no guilt by association in this situation. But it does say that we do need to, as a society, work on police brutality to minimize it. But if the person being brutalized is black and the person doing the brutalizing is white, it immediately becomes a racist discussion then, right? Or I should say a, a, a discussion about racism. And then for me saying, hey, I care about this. This is a, this is a, um, a topic which I really care deeply about. Can I do that? without being accused of being woke. Because if I were accused of being woke in this situation, then I might just say, well, if I'm really sensitive to it, that is, I might just say, well, then I'm not going to protest. And how is that going to benefit society? Right. So it's very interesting. And, and so bottom line for me anyways is that, yes, you can be progressive without being woke. But you also have to be careful that, you know, read John McWhorter's book or at least read part of his book, at least the first few chapters, and take a look at what he has to say, because you do have to be careful about this so-called you know, revolution, the progressive revolution, getting out of hand and being being hijacked by people who have these idealistic perspectives on how society should be run. <clears throat> this thing about cancel culture, for example, let's cancel out people who are guilty. Well, they may not actually be guilty, right? Let's take a look at each situation for what it is. Sometimes they are guilty, sometimes they aren't. But even if they are guilty, how do we handle that as a society? Do we cancel them? Do we try to re-educate them? You know, um, you know, it's really hard to touch upon that subject without touching upon this accusation of being woke. And uh, I r- really don't have an answer to that question, but uh, it's something to think about anyways. Anyways, uh, moving along here, it's, it's nice to know that the um, Chinese balloon has uh, finally been shot down off the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, when as soon as it crossed over the, uh, the beach there, I imagine that um, the military said, okay, let's go for it, and let's make sure we're not shooting this thing down. <clears throat> let's aim our missiles away from the continental United States, for example, and shoot this thing down. And what I find interesting is the, is the outrage coming now from who? from China, of all places, right? They're saying, hey, we have a right to fly our balloon over your airspace. And I have to admit, I sort of take a, sort of took a, a ghoulish sort of pleasure watching this whole thing float over the United States because uh, personally, I don't think that balloon could have collected a lot of information. But there was also this argument that said, hey, you know, the Chinese already have satellites up there. They can just spy on us from their satellites. They could see the, uh, one of the guys said they could see a jackrabbit uh, running around uh, outside one of our missile silos. That may be true, but the problem with, with, the problem with satellites is physics, basically. To get a really good shot at the Earth, to get a really good viewpoint of the Earth, you have to be kind of close to the Earth. So you're in a low Earth orbit, probably 100, maybe 150 miles out there. So you're you're a very low orbit. Uh, orbital speed is pretty close to 19,000 miles an hour. So if you think about it, if you're, if you're in a satellite and you're looking in that low orbit and you're looking at the Earth, you don't have that much time to actually study something. You zip by maybe a military installation, snap a few pictures. You don't have a whole lot of time to collect any other information, maybe some, uh, uh, some uh, radio intelligence or something like that. Uh, you're gone, right? You're gone within a minute or so. 
So that's just the one snapshot you get. When you come back around the Earth, you know, 90 minutes later, you've made a complete orbit. But by this time, the Earth has rotated by, you know, an hour and a half. And so you're not covering the same territory anymore. So if there is a territory, if there is like a military base that you want to look at and spend some time studying, um, <clears throat> you can do it to some degree with a satellite, but you can get a lot more intelligence through a balloon because those balloons can kind of hover over the ground for, you know, a long period of time and uh, maybe even uh, get other intelligence like telemetry from the Earth. Kind of brings back to mind um, something that uh, a, a fellow told me this was way, way back in the early 1980s. I was working with him, and um, he probably told me some stuff he shouldn't have told me at the time. I can probably tell you right now what was happening. Uh, he was, while he was in the Navy, he was stationed in the northernmost island of Japan, the Hokkaido Island. And um, his job was to interpret telemetry and other intelligence coming out of Russia, uh, well, of Soviet Union at the time. It was during the Cold War. And he was gathering intelligence specifically from the Sakhalin Peninsula, uh, probably as far south as Vladivostok. This is all like you know, the eastern side of Russia. And what we would do, at the, what the United States would do at that point, and he plainly admitted this, he said, we had our SR-71s up there. And I don't know what the operational ceiling of these SR-71s is. It's probably still classified, but I venture to say it's probably around 80,000 feet, which is really, really high. And these uh, these planes would zip along, you know, Mach 2, Mach 3, whatever, and they would they would come right at Soviet airspace. And and they would actually penetrate Soviet airspace, go into Soviet airspace with one of our manned SR-71s. And... What would happen? Well, the Russians, of course, or the Soviets at the time, I should say, they would scramble, right? They would scramble their missile systems, they would scramble their, their fighter jets, and they'd get off the ground and they'd try to chase this thing down. Well, the SR-71 didn't spend much time in that airspace. It would turn around and hightail out of there. And no matter what missile they shot at this thing, they could never hit it, right? Because this thing could just outrun anything. But the reason that we would do that is because we could gather all kinds of intelligence of what the Soviet response was. How long did it take them to get off the ground? How long did it take them to fire the missile? What what was the speed of their missile? What was the accuracy of their missiles? So these kind of games were played a lot. And I asked this this uh, co-worker of mine at the time, I was, I was young and dumb back then, but I asked him, I said, well, are the Soviets doing the same thing to us? He says, you bet they are. You know, they're penetrating our airspace a lot, and they do the same thing to us. They gather intelligence from us. And this is one of those unspoken rules of the Cold War, right, or of any type of a potential conflict situation. You gather intelligence from your enemy any way that you can. If it takes flying a aircraft over their airspace to gather the, all that telemetry and analyze it, then that gives you an indication of the readiness of your opponent. So these things happen a lot. And from what I understand now, this Chinese balloon was not the first balloon to float over our country. Um, there were something like three balloons that floated, at least three that we know of, that floated over our country during the Trump administration, and they kept quiet about it. And you might wonder, you know, why do politicians keep quiet about it? Well, it's it's all part of this the game of espionage, right? You don't want to let your enemy know that you know, and you don't want them to know that you know that they know. You know, it, it, uh, it, it's kind of a complex scenario there, and it's been quite a few years since I had any sort of a clearance, but those are the types of games that they play. So when you penetrate uh, 
foreign airspace of, of a sovereign nation, uh, that sovereign nation does have some incentive to keep it quiet as well, to not say anything about it, just sort of cover up their military installations and not say anything about it, not to let them know that you know. The problem with this recent balloon is that, um, well, the public found out about it, right? And there was outrage. And people were saying, shoot it down. I was actually one of them. I thought we should have brought it down too. The problem is, though, a very real problem is you don't want to fire ballistic missiles or you don't want to fire any sort of ballistic weapon whatsoever over U.S. territory, not by our military anyways. Because that, uh, whatever you fire at it, maybe it's a 50-millimeter cannon coming out of a, you know, F-15 or something like that, that bullet is going to go right through that balloon and it's going to keep going. And those suckers have a lot of velocity on them. They're going to come down somewhere. That's, that's not to mention the school bus size um, piece of equipment falling from the balloon itself. And yeah, it's mostly rural area, but <clears throat> what does that say about our rural people, right? You don't matter. We're going to put you at risk, but you don't matter. We're going to do it in a, in a fairly unpopulated area. What does that mean? It's over farmland, right? What's out in the farming communities? There's houses out there too. There's property out there. There's schools out there. So if this thing came down on top of a school or maybe came down on an interstate, uh, people could die. People get killed. And who would be to blame? Well, the people that made the decision to shoot it down. And I have to admit, I gave our governor of Missouri here, Mike Parson, I gave him a lot of trouble on Twitter because he was challenged by one of his own state senators, a guy by the name of Nick Shore. He was challenged by Nick Shore to, to shoot this balloon down. And Mike Parson does have, uh, does have control over the uh, National Guard in Missouri here, which I may may or may not, I don't know, but uh, probably does have the ability to shoot this thing down. Mike Parson could have shot it down, and I'm sure he thought about it. But um, for, all, for, for as much as I criticize a guy, uh, at the end of the day, I think he made the right decision. Let's not do it. It puts too many people at risk. Now, you may agree or disagree with me, but you're not the one whose house is being crushed by this a school bus size piece of equipment falling on your house. You're not the one that's going to end up on the receiving end of that 50 millimeter cannon that's coming at you. But someone is, or someone could be, and that's a risk that I don't think we should take. So in the end, uh, I, I believe I was wrong. I was my my theory was to knock it down with a laser. You know, just uh, <clears throat> a welding laser. Hit that balloon with a welding laser to go right through the fabric of it and pop the thing. And uh, even if it doesn't pop it, it'll definitely let some of the gas out of it and it'll come down. But uh, but I think I was wrong with that because it could have come down and hurt somebody. So anyways, they did shoot it down as soon as it got into an area that it could be shot down. And now we're digging through like 40 feet of uh, ocean water it landed in a fairly shallow part of the ocean, so they're down there right now, I'm sure, pulling this thing off out of the sand and uh, going to put it back up on shore and put it back together and, and see what the Chinese were doing. And the funny thing I find is that, uh, you know, you have a lot of people saying, we're going to launch an investigation. Why was this thing allowed to drift over our airspace to begin with? Why did, why did we shoot it down was over the Aleutian Islands? And the problem with that is it's very thorny <clears throat> because outside of our airspace, uh, it's international airspace, and you cannot shoot something down in international airspace. You don't want to start that sort of precedent. And um, 
honestly, I think that they were just going to let this thing drift by like they did, you know, during the Trump administration at least three times, like I said. Just let this thing go by. We'll try to limit the damage. We'll let it go by. But because the American people got involved in it and politicians started screaming about it, uh, I'm sure that President Biden probably made that decision. Well, let's just shoot the thing down now that everybody knows about it. And of course, China is outraged. They said, this is just a weather balloon that drifted off track. I'm like, yeah, right. It's probably a spy satellite or a, a spy balloon. But who really cares at the end of the day? <clears throat> the Chinese, I'm sure, got some intelligence out of the thing. And um, and now they can, uh, they know how to pull our strings, right? They just got to launch about a thousand of these things from China. And then just to uh, watch how the, how the Americans uh, just go crazy over it. Um, I'm not suggesting that they do it, but, um, you know, if you're the, if you really want to mess up your enemies, you can do something like that. Okay. Um, let me see. That was about it for me. I just wanted to touch on, uh, the question, can you be woke without being progressive? And I wanted to talk a little bit about the, uh, radio station and also wanted to talk about the Chinese balloon. So that's it for this week. I uh, hope you tune in next week and, um, as the radio station comes online, uh, you'll definitely hear about it here. And uh, I'll probably start devoting more and more of my time to this radio station. I think it's a great idea. And like I say, if you're interested in it, uh, please let me know. I'll send you my personal email address is dan at democracyonthemove.org. That's dan at democracyonthemove.org. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Ray Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again next week.